Thank you, ladies. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Numbers chapter 16. We're nearing the end of our series on the life of Moses. Yet there seems no end to the challenges and even the rebellions a godly leader like Moses will face. We could probably summarize the last few messages under the subtitle, Grumblings and Rumblings, as the people of God continue to campaign with complaining against Moses' leadership and then suffering the holy wrath of God, only to be spared by Moses' gracious intercession. Well, tonight is no different in this theme, and yet it is kind of a climax in this series as Moses faces his toughest opposition yet, of men rising up in rebellion against his authority. It would seem in our text that this group of rabble had had enough. Moses' reign must end. These sinners seem to fail to learn that God will vindicate his man and that he will punish the rebels and they indeed will suffer severe consequences for their sin. But I believe that these words are given for us tonight to remind us not only of the severity of God's wrath, yet also the riches of his sovereign mercy for us in Christ. Please follow as I read Numbers 16, verses 1 through 35. Korah, son of Ithar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. And he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put fire and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites. Isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them. He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you are trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough? 
that you have brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert. And now you also want to lord it over us. Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you gouge out the eyes of these men? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not accept their offering. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each man took his censer, put fire and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Separate yourselves from this assembly, so I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, God of the spirits of all mankind, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you'll be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrances to their tents. Then Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all chorus men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community." At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father, a sobering text we are confronted with tonight. As we reckon with the rebellion and unbelief of men of old who failed to trust you and to follow your appointed leader. Father, help us to gain a heart of wisdom as we consider this text and help us to see the work of your grace and your mercy, even in the midst of this terrible judgment. We ask your blessing upon our time in Jesus' name. Amen.
I was stopped for my first speeding ticket at the age of 15. I did not even have my license yet. I was driving with my permit, my parents in the car with me. We were on a long car trip, returning to Texas, and we're crossing 17-mile bridge on Interstate 10 in Louisiana. Now, all of the more experienced drivers knew that when you come to the end of the bridge, you need to slow down because Johnny Law is right there ready to catch you. And so I got nailed. And the funny thing was is that as the officer saw me and my permit, he realized he couldn't give me the ticket. It went to dear old dad instead, who was uh, sitting next to me in what we affectionately referred to as the death seat. That was not a pleasant experience. Well, a few months later, when I did get my actual license, it didn't take me long for to, act- to get my real first speeding ticket. I don't remember the circumstances. But I do recall that in the state of Texas, they have this law that you could, if you had a speeding violation, you could go take this class, a six- or eight-hour class called defensive driving. And after taking this class, it would credit you by removing from your record one ticket. And so I promptly signed up, paid my fee, and showed up to the class. The class was run by a retired police officer who had a dry wit and ran the class like an AA meeting. We all had to go in and tell our story and confess our speeding infractions. And so we relearned all the driving safety rules that we had missed from years past, and we all made our pledges to be good little drivers from then on out. And so I was good for a year, keeping me out of insurance trouble. But when that year was up, guess what I did? I got caught speeding again. And because of this law, I was actually able to take that class again to remove yet another infraction from my record. And so I went back to the class, same retired police officer, same lame excuses from all the other traffic violators. And so I was good for another year. After that year... I got another speeding ticket, and I took the class again, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year, until finally at the age of 21, due to some circumstances in our family, I was without a car my senior year of college, and so that broke the cycle. Six years straight of going to defensive driving. I'm surprised they never asked me to teach the class. I had it memorized. Some of us have to learn the hard way. We like to test the limits. We push the boundaries to the edge. We easily forget and have to be reminded. You would think that by now Israel would have gotten the message. Don't mess with God. Stop challenging Moses' authority. They had seen what God had done to Egypt. They had seen God provide water in the desert, meat 
and manna to eat. They had seen what God had done to Miriam, inflicting her with leprosy for speaking against Moses. And they were currently suffering the punishment of God. Forty years of wilderness wanderings for their unbelief and rebellion after the spies came back from Canaan. You would think that Israel would finally get it. But they don't. They're stubborn. They're determined to do it my way or the highway. We can only imagine the amount of strain this must have made for Moses. Moses seems to get it. He has learned to intercede for the people. Moses is a good mediator. And yet we can suspect that Moses was very tired, worn out, having his leadership constantly tested. We sympathize with Moses. No doubt he was asking these kinds of questions. Why don't the people obey me, God? Why would they just listen? Like an exasperated parent with an unruly teenager. The burden of a leader is that he must bear his authority being repeatedly challenged. He must validate himself again and again. And this is very taxing. And I believe illumines Moses' later failure a few chapters ahead of us. Like Israel, we test the Lord. We are slow to learn. And fail to trust in his goodness. And yet our Redeemer is faithful. To remove our guilt. And provides us a perfect intercessor. Who never wears out. And remains patient with us. I want to break down our our text into three major parts. First looking at this rabble that tests God. Then the rumble of God's wrath. And finally, the rubble of punishment. Verse 1 tells us that these men took. But it doesn't say exactly what they took. They merely goes on to say that they rose up against Moses. Now, many commentators and translations infer that the Hebrew is saying that these rebels took men. In verse 2, it refers to 250 men who rose up with them. Another translation generically approaches this text to, to say that, well, these rebels, these leaders took action. The NIV that I read from translates it, these men became insolent. And that's true. They were. These men were taking advantage of the situation. ...to malign Moses' character. They were taking Moses' reputation. They would take his position, if possible. And they were taking matters into their own hands... ...failing to seek the Lord's will in their opposition. Verse 2 tells us that these 250 men were well known. They were the chiefs and the leaders of the people... Now, if you want to start a coup of a government, you don't rally to yourself the losers and the nobodies. No, you gather to yourself men of clout. You want to give your rebellion credibility. 
And no doubt the Israelites were impressed with the list of names on this petition. This was not the usual troublemakers amongst them. These were well-respected men, perhaps even some of the 70, on whom the Lord anointed the spirit of Moses. Their actions got the people's attention. This would be a major showdown. The after-school fight of the week. On verse 3, this group rises up to oppose Moses and Aaron. And Korah argues that all of the assembly was holy. And not just Aaron and Moses. Now, he's right in part. They were a holy nation set apart by God. And yet, Korah neglects a very important fact. That God had established a role of the mediator in Moses and the high priest in Aaron. But I think the larger issue behind this troublemaking and rebellion is that the people and these leaders in particular were tired of the rules. They were tired of worshiping God's way, of all the rituals of cleansing and being confronted daily with their sin. And their weaknesses. And so Korah is saying in a sense. If I were high priest. This is how I would do things. In the spirit of Absalom. Who would rise up against his father David. People in the church can grow tired. Of being confronted with their sin. People leave churches because faithful pastors repeatedly preach on sin and the need for the redeeming grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some people don't like that. That's too narrow. That is intolerant. People prefer to see themselves as basically pretty good with a few flaws and merely want a weekly boost to help them manage life a little better. And so they go off to other preachers who will teach them what their itching ears want to hear. Others bristle at the faithful leadership of a man who sticks to the word of God. They would prefer a weaker man who is easily manipulated. Who will yield to their demands. And don't want a strong man who resists their desire for control. Even against the written word of God. The Jonathan Edwards was one such faithful leader who was ejected from his pulpit in Northampton a couple centuries ago because of his faithful stand on the issue of communion, declaring biblically that only professing believers in Christ and not just the respected members of the community may partake of the Lord's Supper. The people didn't like that. And so they kicked him out. Verses 13 and 14 shed for us further light on the rebellion. Two men named Dathan and Abiram offer in their two cents worth, and that's about all their criticism is worth. And in a mocking tone, they repeat what Moses said in rebuking the Levites Isn't it enough? And goes on to exaggerate their trials. 
and to paint the picture of their former days in Egypt as a picnic, as paradise. Now, no, no doubt, they suffered much in the wilderness. Yet they were a free people with hope and with direction and lived and dwelt in the presence of Almighty God. And yet still they grumble and they even accuse Moses of killing them there in the desert. And yet they were sadly mistaken. For it was not Moses, rather, it was God's will. That they should suffer the judgment of an entire generation dying, being buried in the sands of the wilderness for their failure to believe his word. Wicked men will refuse responsibility for their own sin, blaming others and even God. Like Cain, they refuse to submit to their punishment and the just consequences for their sins. And so a man of God must rise up to meet them with grace and dignity. And so Moses does. But before rising, he falls in humility before the Lord. You and I, in Moses' situation, would no doubt feel threatened, even betrayed. We'd be intimidated by such prominent men rising up to challenge us. Moses, no doubt, was also pierced by these traitors, many of whom he had discipled and prayed for. A lesser man would cave to the fear and anger and self-pity. And yet Moses is battle-ready. He knows how to fight, not with his fist, not even with his tongue, but on his knees. My wife and I recently watched the film Facing the Giants, the story of head coach Grant Taylor, coach of the Shiloh Eagles, a private Christian school in Georgia. Coach Taylor has not had a winning season in six years. He suffers the setback of his main running back abandoning and transferring to another school at the start of the season. After losing the first three games of this season, Coach Taylor learns that some of the dads are conspiring to have him fired and replace him with the assistant coach. On other fronts, he and his wife suffer other challenges, not least of which is infertility. Coach Taylor is overwhelmed, frustrated, and at the end of his rope. Then he receives a strong word of encouragement from a faithful man that sets him on a new course. Grant Taylor humbles himself and goes before the Lord on his knees, inspired with a new set of goals, not just winning football games, but teaching his players how to glorify God win or lose, and to believe that nothing is impossible with God. Next day, he charges his team with this new philosophy. The players are perplexed at first until they begin to see change. Some of the key players convert and give their lives to Christ. Broken homes are reconciled. Revival breaks out on campus. And then the team leader, who was Coach Taylor's worst opponent, changes his attitude to join the coach in a new effort to give his all every minute, every down, 
of every game. The Eagles win their next game. And the next. And the next. And then, by a remarkable turn of province, eventually find themselves in the state championship. The little guys. The underdogs facing the giants. The reigning state champs. Like Moses, Coach Taylor learns to stop looking to himself for his strength and inspiration. He takes his focus off of winning petty football games to setting his sights on the glory of God. He learns not to be intimidated by his opponents. He takes on a God-sized perspective. He learns to trust the Lord and obey him, leaving the results to God. He even takes the pain of his betrayal and leaves it at the foot of the cross. You and I face giants who threaten to undo us, intimidate us, marginalize us. And we must decide how we will respond. Will we back down, shut our mouths, and get trampled? Could it be your boss? Or a coworker who threatens to undermine you? Is it a family member who belittles you? Could it be a contractor who is trying to take advantage of you? What will you do? Cower in self-pity? Stew in hostility? Slander in your mind or with your tongue? You may either attack in your flesh or surrender the battle to God and let him fight for you. Moses provides us an example of how to handle overwhelming circumstances. He falls down and humbles himself before Almighty God. What stresses you? A fight with your spouse, an unexpected bill, a car accident. Complaining children. A disagreement with your boss. Go to your knees. Humble yourself before the Lord. And let him fight this battle for you. Back in chapter 12. Facing the opposition of his sister and brother. We noticed that Moses was silent. And yet, in this occasion, silence is not an option. There is a time to be silent, and there is a time to speak. Formerly, it was only Moses' reputation that was at stake. Now, it's the welfare of the people on the line. Moses, after going to the Lord, rises up to speak and confront Korah. He exposes Korah's discontent, his jealousy of Aaron. Greedily seeking the position of high priest. He defends the Lord's prerogative to choose whom he wills to be the leader of God's people. Notice also that Moses gets angry. He petitions God to not accept these men. He defends himself before the Lord in his integrity. And lastly, Moses will entrust himself to the Lord. By challenging Korah and his followers to a match. 
to see who the Lord will choose. Here's the game. You and your 250 come versus Aaron, the one. Much like Elijah going up against the prophets of Baal. And the God who answers in fire. He is God. Well, men may squabble and fight and argue. But then the glory of God appears. God speaks and pronounces doom upon the entire community. He's not come to arbitrate. God is not a conciliator. God is judge and he has every intention to do just that. He says to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from the people. Perhaps visions of Noah and his family. Or Lot and his family were swirling through Moses' mind. And he fears that this would be the big one. God had threatened to wipe out the Israelites before. God's holiness is being tested. Once again, how can a righteous God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? This time, both Moses and Aaron fall face down. Moses is getting good at this. He is well exercised in spiritual push-ups. He knows how to intercede for his people. And he pleads with God to spare them, condemning only the leaders. The Lord graciously hears. He does not wipe out the people. Moses is learning something about God's compassion. And that when Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, it's not on the basis of their goodness. Rather, the goodness and the mercy of God. Moses warns the people, lest they be swept away in the judgment. God is cleaning house, and the people wisely heed the warning. And then Moses is even willing to put his prophet's role to the test, submitting himself to the scrutiny that... If these rebels die a natural death, then the Lord has not spoken through me. The man of God must submit himself to the scrutiny of others. Having nothing to hide in his integrity and trusting himself ultimately to God's judgment. But then we see in verse 31 that as soon as Moses finished speaking, sure enough, the ground splits The earth opens its mouth and swallows the rebels alive. It seems like something out of the Lord of the Rings. Of the ground swallowing up wicked orcs, disappearing forever under the earth. But this is in the Bible. And this is history. And we must ask ourselves... What is the significance of this particular divine punishment? Could it be that God is denying these men the very dignity of a normal death? Usually in such circumstances, Israel would be called upon to stone the rebels or the idolaters. Their blood would be spilt upon the ground. and They would be buried under a heap of rocks and rubble. Giving a warning to other would-be usurpers. But perhaps no one except Moses and Aaron were worthy to cast the stones. The Israelite community had all sinned, and so they are not deserving to cast a stone. No, God gives the job to the earth. And in a sense, using the crass language of contemporary culture, 
God sends these men straight to hell. Don't pass go. Do not collect $200. It's a one-way ticket. Something dreadful. And it's something, my friend, that we should never wish upon any human being ever. God alone is just. And by his own prerogative can send sinners to hell. And it's only by his sovereign mercy that you and I do not suffer the same. The Lord will answer by fire. Consuming the other 250 leaders, God will have no rivals. And one would think that Israel would get the message. Don't mess with Moses. And yet they still have not learn their lesson. I mentioned earlier about my lead foot problem with tickets. I also had this other tendency. I like to see how far I could drive on a tank of gas. On one occasion, one morning, I was driving to high school, and I noticed my tank was on empty. And I saw down the road a gas station about half a mile down, and I sped up and then just let myself cruise. And I just coasted ever so nicely. And as I'm pulling into the driveway of this gas station, everything just shuts down. Power searing and all. And I had just enough momentum to pull up ever so smoothly up against the gas pump. I bragged about that one all day at school. But pride comes before the fall. Play near the fire enough and you will get burned. On at least three occasions, I found myself stranded, having to walk to get gas. Some of us have to learn the hard way. And so with Israelite people, the next day, unfortunately, they grumble and accuse Moses of killing these people. They so quickly forget that it was Moses' intercession that spared them judgment. And so the Lord's glory appears again. The Lord seems determined to wipe them out completely this time. His patience is ended. Now, if I were Moses, I would have been tempted to say, go right ahead. I'm sick of them too. Wipe them out. But Moses is more compassionate than I am. And Moses is more committed to the glory of God. Because ultimately it's God's reputation that is on the line. Not the people. But God's glory. And so the Lord is persuaded to withhold his wrath. And yet his wrath does fall. And Moses and Aaron fall down and intercede. And Aaron hustles about to bring his censer and his fire to make atonement for the people. And it says that Aaron must stand between the living and the dead. He will defile himself as the high priest, going amidst the unclean. 14,700 people will die. That's a heavy cost. Over 600,000 men, not including women, will also go on to die and be buried in the wilderness. Due to their stubborn refusal to let God be God and follow his word. What these people needed were not 
better rules, not a new leader, not returning to the good old days. They need a mediator, one who will stand in the gap for them. And only a perfect mediator can shield sinners from the unmitigated wrath of God. You see, God is just, and he must punish sin. And thankfully for us, God has met his just requirements by punishing his own son in our place. The jaws of the earth, the fire and the plague are reminders to us of what we deserve because of our unbelief, our unfaithfulness. Were it not for our mediator, Jesus Christ, who knowing that we would fail, fell face down before the Father, pleading his mercy. It was Jesus who entered into the shadowlands, who stood between the living and the dead, who defiled himself and made atonement once and for all for God's people. And Jesus knows that we still forget. And that's why he continues to intercede before, for us, before the Father. The text ends on a sour note. And yet there is a glimmer of hope as we trail further on in redemptive history. We learn that not all of Korah's family was wiped out. At least some of his sons were spared. And we find that they go on to have a wonderful career as gatekeepers in the Lord's temple. And they make up a large body of the singers and musicians in David's choir. They will pen no less than 11 psalms between 42 and 88. Some knuckleheads finally do learn. I doubt that many of you are openly rebelling, testing the Lord in the manner of Korah. I hope that most of you have better driving, better stewards of your driving responsibilities than I was in my younger days. But all of us forget this very simple message of the Bible. That Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. He who loved us and gave his life for us. We need this daily reminder that you do not earn God's favor. You get on no inside track with God by serving him. That God is no longer angry with you. When you continue to blow it. When you continue to fail to keep his law. He has not rejected you. He has not turned his back on you. Like Israel, we forget this. And that's why we need to come back to the cross daily. To feed on a regular diet of God's grace like manna. We must not go a day without it. You cannot store it up for tomorrow. You may only collect your daily bread. But with Moses, may we fall face down before the Lord, bringing him our grief, our burdens, confessing our faults to receive his grace. And then get up and keep marching to the tune of our conquering champion our Lord Jesus Christ.
Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being such a perfect mediator. The one who has stood in the gap, who has dwelt amongst the living and the dead, for defiling yourself, for atoning for our sin, for reconciling us to God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your precious name. Amen.